welcome to the second part of the conversation introducing the Elephants series on an intellectual agenda for Africa. I am your host, Mishai Mwangola, and with me is my panel, Dr. Wandia Njoya, Dr. Alex Awiti, and Owa. We ended the first part with Wandia talking about how she has extended her classroom, so to speak, online, using her social media accounts and her blog to invite people to make personal connections with ideas and discussions circulating in the public sphere. We continue here to explore the roles, responsibilities, and personal agendas undergirding intellectual work. We shift our focus to the other parties involved in the discourse the audience. If the intellectual intends to catalyze something through her or his work, what exactly is this? Owa picks up from where Wandia stopped. Should I, after I read your blog, or I come and I watch an episode of Too Early for Birds, Mm -hmm. do I leave feeling I must do something about this? Or is it just enough that I know? Sometimes you get an emotion out of it. Now, what do I do with that? That's a better conversation beyond what you had two hours before you walked into the show because now that might require more reading and all that. So you catalyze my interest. Yes, and part of it is from what one guy is saying. We, uh, we are putting emotion in what we're doing. Objective journalism was... We're not robots. What would you say, Wendy, to somebody who says, look, Mm -hmm. as an intellectual, I don't want you to come to me with agendas. Mm -hmm. Your job is to teach me, to enable me to do things, but don't try to sell me over to your politics. Okay, I don't know whether I have... Because you get that accusation a lot. Yes, and that comes from a misunderstanding of what the public sphere is about. Because the public sphere is the place where all of us come together with our agendas, our diversity of histories and knowledges and backgrounds, and we say, what do we want as a society? So for me, my agenda is the enrichment of the public sphere, meaning uh, enrichment of the conversation, which is what Alex said. Whatever the public is discussing that affects all of us, that is all I'm trying to do to influence. Now, my politics comes in when, for example, especially when I talk about social services, I am a person who always talks about the importance of every Kenyan having access to healthcare and good education. So if that's political, that one I am unapologetic for. But it's because I feel we cannot all participate in the public sphere equally if we are not healthy and if we are not properly educated. So on that level, I am very... Uh, political but when it comes to personalities I mean I'm not really that interested for me it's those issues that affect all of us and especially when it comes to now deciding what is a priority for us where do we spend most of our resources as the country should it go to infrastructure or health I think these are public conversations and they are necessarily political if you look at politics in terms of distribution of resources and the plight of the majority for me that's what politics is it's not who is president and who is vice president it's how do we distribute the resources we have and where are the majority of Kenyans at so whatever agenda I push I'm pushing thinking of those two main issues so sometimes personalities get into the way of course as a playwright as you know you can't avoid the personalities and their individual idiosyncrasies but the bigger goal is to just talk about the public sphere and what is it that Kenyans are seeing on the public stage and it's fine if we disagree I know you and I have a pet issue that we come back to yes. and we disagree robustly yes. right but then we are able to shape each other's ideas Which brings me to Alex. How would you characterize your work? So first, in the public space, I write a regular column for one of the local newspapers that have been doing that for several international newspapers for the last 10 years. So that's the space where my public intellectual 
activity plays out. But then there's the academic side to a very limited audience for a very limited space of conversation. But if you look at what I put out there for public engagement in terms of my weekly column, it's really informed largely by the things that I do. At the East Africa Institute, we work on a diverse set of issues that we think are consequential drivers of change in the region that have policy implications. And policy, in my view, is an attempt to put out a series of development or change hypotheses that are testable in implementation in the way that you resource them. They could be ideas about how to improve health and education, agriculture, etc. So in that space, and going back to some of the points that you covered with or is where do we get that engagement space and how do you enjoy and open up that space for public conversation? And policy is one of those places where everybody feels and politics is really about who gets what, where, why and when. And it's just those distribution questions. And the question is, what is the subject around which distribution conversations must happen? And what is the set of hypotheses that we're using to drive some of this? Mr. Kenyatta might say, for instance, that if I build the SGR, I open up the hinterland, and then we put more goods, and that's going to spur agriculture. That's kind of one hypothesis for large infrastructure. Somebody might say, if you waive tuition, you then open up schools for more kids. And by one day, I might ask, what about quality? Is education just about access? And what about quality of education? So... A lot of the work that I then do is to help lay out these spaces for then people to say, okay, we've been doing this for the last 50 years, but why do we still have atrocious maternal and infant outcomes in Trukana? Those kinds of spaces are invisible until you have the data and then the explaining that we do with very simple writing. So it's really the space for accessible translation of things that in the making people are not interested in. I don't care about the detail of policy. But I care about the effects of that policy implementation. Now, how do I then get the public to get into a conversation about the characteristics and outcome of that public policy? Not at the mechanics of going to Afia House, but why is my child dying? Why is it that when my mom or my auntie goes on maternity, she doesn't come back? Or she comes back but minus the baby? Why are the levels of stunting so high in these places? Why do we get so many people killed in road accidents? What is the necessary public conversation that creates an opportunity for us to have that equitable space in terms of access to facts and the basis for then engaging the people that we call elected leaders? And some of the work that I do in the media, for instance, uh, some of the more recent interesting work that we did on drought, was to basically question the structure and the characteristics of global international development and global public policy that come to us through the SDGs and previously the MDGs. And right now we've been having this conversation with the UN guys. And this is kind of the interesting part that in an academic space, what you get is that respect and authority. So that when you weigh in on something, people know that's Alex Awiti from Aga Khan University. And I have a fancy title before my name. So there's some kind of credibility in that. So I can then engage the UN guys and say, but who tells you that? I live in this space where we ask the kinds of questions, how long will you do relief without building the necessary capability and assets so that people don't have to die from a drought? And as John has said many times, Drought is a natural phenomenon. Famine is politically and institutionally exacerbated. It's created by the dysfunction and inability to respond in a timely manner. Now, that's where we want to ask 
Well, Wajiku now must come into that space and ask, why do we have a famine? And then Uhuru should come with a response and say, well, maize is at the port, it is coming. But how do you make this conversation such that now Wajiku can now speak at that level of asking the bureaucrat and saying, well, but that doesn't add up because you spent X amount of money and I should have had these bags of fertilizer and that response in terms of emergency intervention should have come in a timely way. So it's really breaking down these barriers. But I think part of the goal of a public intellectual in that space then is to energize citizenship and the quest for accountability. And I think this, to me, is really kind of the space where we now say that public intellectual work is very different from what we do in the academy, which is basically, as remember, as my colleagues in a boardroom or in a seminar. And that's why it's a, how do we enjoy a larger conversation is to create these accessible spaces for active citizenship, but also pushing accountability mechanisms. They then now say, what have you done with my tax money lately? And I think that to me is that hallowed space of public intellectual engagement, which then puts a responsibility on me to make sure that those conversations are based in fact, but they're also accessible. So if people can't read what I write and understand it, then I have failed in that sense. If, I, if my writing doesn't get someone to think about what's my role as a citizen, and then what is the contract and obligation between me and the government? So really what we are saying is that the role of the public intellectual is to facilitate a conversation mm -hmm. and you're catalyzing not so much you telling people but you say okay I start something and then a conversation starts and that conversation then moves people mm -hmm. to a different space within their thinking. Yeah. So in a sense, it might do two things, and just reflecting on some of Owa's comments. At some instance, you put a mirror in front of people, so it's a reflective engagement. And another time, you invite them to an experience, and it's a portrait that you create from the data that we have. Like for instance, if I draw this portrait of inequality across the country by getting very accessible data, population census data, demographic uh, health survey stuff, and I create this portrait that begins to show somebody in Kiambu that you're not very different from someone in Trukana. Because hey, your mothers just die as much as they die in Trukana, and look at this number. May you sort of go, why that word? Okay, so then we've discussed all the spaces and what we're trying to do in terms of catalyzing discussion. It sounds to me that you feel that in a, an intellectual owes certain responsibilities, has responsibilities in society. Am I right about that? Yeah. Okay, so what would they be? How can you articulate? If you were to tell me that if you do nothing else, you must do one, two, or three, what would those be? One day, let's start with you. There are two things. One is the intellectual has to side with the people, mm -hmm. and the people meaning the public good, but especially also those who are the most vulnerable in our societies. So whatever they are facing, the intellectual has to side with the people who are getting the brunt of whatever is happening. And then connected to that, the intellectual has to separate, and this I take from Du Bois, um, the intellectual has to separate people from the problems that they face. What he was saying is that scholarship tends to equate the two and say, if somebody is facing a problem, it's because they are bad and because they've done something wrong, or the poor are unemployed because they, they don't take education seriously. You know those kinds so of things. So women are their own worst enemies. Women are their own worst enemies. So he says an intellectual must separate whoever the person is from the problems that they are facing and for me those are the two rules that I feel I am responsible to propagate whenever I'm writing okay, so when you're teaching in whatever forum you are yes Alex what are responsibilities I think the ultimate for me is public engagement can we get a conversation or can you create a canvas and a space that enables people to speak of the same sense of understanding of a public issue and that comes to the analogy of portrait and mirror can you illuminate the issue enough for people to then take an act of responsibility of citizenship and for the leaders or the people who make decisions 
to then feel an obligation to do what is right by the people. And in many senses, it becomes the very tricky space because as a good as Many public intellectuals come into these spaces with the main of authority that I know, therefore I'm going to direct the public conversation. And that can become very frustrating. So that you have a personal interest in seeing a specific outcome. And that can in some ways polarize society. So the question then is, and Wanda said this, you cannot divorce your emotions and your personal experience. And what is truth becomes in many ways relative. It's constructed, it is context specific it can actually also be very situational. And sometimes it, it, it boils down to what's convenient and what's appropriate. And those kind of get into the values and, uh, and, and all those other spaces. But for instance, I'll give an example. If we say took National Examination Council results, if we for some reason they give us those, those results and we say, let's look at the country for the last 40 years. Let's look at the spatial patterns of school outcomes. Consistently, what do we see? Are there spaces in the country where performance is better? Are there spaces that have poor performance? If I put out that data, what kind of conversation do I want? And I think this is really where you start to feel how much then of judgment and just good sense would be needed to lay the conversation in a way that it's not about blame passing, but it's about the reflection part now. That's that's the mirror in front of us. What do we see? The point I'm trying to make is that even with cold facts, that you feel, okay, there's only one thing you can take out of this as a policymaker, fix the problem. It then becomes like, oh, so why, why do these guys from Western Kenya with these great schools, why are their kids always doing okay? And why is it difficult to post as a teacher to Trukana? Why aren't we fixing those conditions? Oh yeah, they don't like us. Trukana see Kenya, Apuani see Kenya, those kinds of things. And that's really the trick. That sometimes when what you intend is to catalyze public engagement and citizen activism and then drive public accountability from the government to do the explaining, you might actually get absolutely the opposite reactions from some of those things. For instance, some of what David D does creates exactly those kinds of problems. So that instantly, it is not about the economics and the rationale of building an SGR. When everybody knows that we will not have the amount of cargo that can even drive the thing to even a quarter of profitability. And if it's about moving cargo, there are like a zillion more cost-effective ways that might have been applied. So to lay those facts bare then creates that polarizing space where people immediately retreat to their corners and say, well, he doesn't like development. But the development narrative has been shaped in a skewed way. They did not examine the entirety of those facts. And as public intellectuals, even when we ran ahead to set the conversation, the other side was like, we don't care about that. So even even though you're trying to get some responsibility in terms of a response and an explanation about why in 2017, with the cargo we've moved historically since 1960, and given even the projections of economic growth, population growth, this consumerism thing, even when you combine all of our hinterland, which is DR Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, South Sudan, we will not hold that kind of. So I think that is the most frustrating space because then again, in a polarized political environment, you then get labeled and people think you've picked sides. When the argument goes to the other side and the argument seems to favor some of the things that we're trying to do, then they say, well, but you're flip-flopping. Well, how much have you been paid lately? I've been asked that question and I say, so someone asked me once, uh, I'd been on NTV or on KTN and I say, well, I'm going to check with Mr. Kenyatta. I'm not sure what the, there were several zeros in there. I don't know exactly how many of them were behind the the digit. Because some people think that as a public intellectual, when you frame the debate, you're a gun for hire. Hold on, but straight. then let's be honest. Some academics, thinkers, I don't know if I should call them public intellectuals, are guns for hire. And sometimes, you know, I feel passionately, when they talked about this, about a particular position that happens to gel with the politics of a particular party, yeah. a particular side. Mm. 
And it cannot be my job or me all by myself to try and always present both sides of the debate. Mm. So I'm going to, I'm presenting a position. Some people will read it politically and there's nothing I can do about that. And if I want to be true mm. to what I want to do as a teacher, so what do I do in that kind of a... It's exactly what you said. And I think this is a communication issue. And I think oftentimes as pure academics who come from non-social science, more communicative types of conversations, and that's what I was telling you guys before we started the segment, is that I used to sit there and listen to this extremely clever economists and literally scholars. And I was wondering, when will I get this sophisticated linguistic assets that can enable me express myself more articulately in sophisticated ways? And it's just limits that we have that are imposed on us as the life of natural scientists in communication. How do you lay out a conversation that is immediately clear that there are two sides to this conversation? And I think that is the absolute fidelity that public intellectuals must have to the public. Yes, I will be distinguished as being in a more structured ideological differentiation of politics and public discourse, I could have one leaning. But people must know me as somebody who has a basis. I've picked my one dead guy whose theories I keep happening all the time. And, and they should just know that. Then I just don't like the other dead guys. But I still mention them, okay? And when I come to a conclusion, I've made the disclosure that this is kind of my bent. And But as a natural scientist, there's just no constant one truth. And it's a constant process of experimentation, discovery, and learning and relearning. So as a public intellectual, I'm coming to the debate because there are many options on the table. With an open mind. With an open mind. Yeah. And I'm going to examine the alternative so that when I am saying this is the position I'm defending, yeah. Yeah. I'm laying out why this position is yeah. something yeah. that I like what you said, that the first, my constituency is the people. So mm. I'm trying to win them over mm. to an argument, to an idea, and not because I represent a particular group of people, Absolutely. but because it's yeah. an idea that yeah. I have sold to yeah. them. Yeah, and as Wendy said, she's not interested in the personalities, she's interested in the idea. If it so happens that it coincides with one personality in the political space, then so be it. But the motivation is not to find a basis for justifying a person's persuasion in a particular public conversation. It's the people's interests, yeah. best interests. It is a public interest, central. and that's why the word public intellectual becomes interesting. And the public becomes the yeah. judge yeah. of who's won yeah. the argument. Yeah. Yeah.